Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with an immigration lawyer who went down to the border last month to meet with a refugee caravan. Reporter Michelle Rendells is here to help with the questions. Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor at the Indie, who's usually here to debate and discuss with me at the end, is a little under the weather, so we'll miss that segment this week, unfortunately. A reminder, if you like us, write us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. Tell your friends, even tell your enemies. Tell people you see on the street. We need the support. Let's get started with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. A couple of major cases went before the state Supreme Court this week, and our staff was all over them. Michelle covered a hearing on whether the state should use an untested lethal injection concoction on an inmate who wants to die. This is all about whether the mixture would violate the Eighth Amendment's injunction against cruel and unusual punishment, which, of course, the death penalty itself does not. The other case, which Riley Snyder covered, has to do with state Senate Republican leader Michael Roberson's attempt to ban so-called sanctuary cities in Nevada. There aren't any, of course, and the phrase really has no meaning unless you are a political dog whistler. But the issue for the justices is the same as it usually is for ballot questions. Does the initiative stick to a single subject as required by law? The only subject Roberson and company care about, though, is the 2018 campaign and their ability to drive up the white vote. There were plenty of developments in the most important state race, the one for governor. Besides new ads, and none of them are positive anymore, Michelle covered a forum where three out of the four major candidates appeared. And Michelle and Jackie Valley covered the unveiling of Chris June Kiliani's education plan, the last of the four major candidates to present one. Not a lot of new ground broken, although the contest between June Kiliani and Steve Sisolak is growing increasingly nasty, and I can't believe it. Early voting starts two weeks from Saturday. Speaking of the campaigns, the Senate race continues to heat up too as Dean Heller used the president's withdrawal from the Iran deal to pound Jackie Rosen. Rosen has said she thought the deal should be recertified, but she also had come out against it a couple of years ago before modifying her position. I'm not sure how many voters Heller can pull away from a former synagogue president on this issue. He has implied she stands with Iran over Israel, which is as nasty as it gets for a Jew. But every vote could matter in a race the polls show is a dead heat, which means this will not abate until November. Finally, our Daniel Rothberg had the scariest story of the week. He reported on an audit that showed some 80 elementary schools have yet to complete testing for lead in the water. A couple of rural school districts have not even responded to the state that they will take advantage of a grant to test for lead. Oh, and the testing program doesn't cover all the points of possible lead contamination in schools. And suddenly, more parents are sending their kids to school with bottled water in their knapsacks. You can read these stories and more on the site, and there's a lot more to check out too, including our indie blog that has snippets of news you won't see anywhere else, including ads and the governor's race and other contests. That's the NevadaIndependent.com. We'll be back in a moment with an immigration attorney who just returned from the border. We're back on Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent with our guest, Laura Barrera. She's an attorney with UNLV's Immigration Clinic. She primarily represents unaccompanied immigrant children in removal proceedings. She recently returned from the southern border. Laura, welcome to Indie Matters. 
Hi, thank you for having me. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, this caravan that was down at the border. I'm going to let Michelle do most of the heavy lifting here since she knows a lot more about this. But explain why you decided to make uh, uh, this pilgrimage down to the southern border. This is a group of Central American folks who were seeking asylum. Lots of controversy. The president tweeted about them. Vice President Pence had a lot to say about them. Why did you decide to go? Well, um, you know, I first heard about it, um, like many people probably, from the president's tweets. And um, because I do this work here, I do asylum cases, I knew that I had the skills um, and experience to help those people. And um, I knew they would be facing some challenges when they got to the U.S. border. So I just wanted to volunteer my time and um, help them prepare to present themselves at the border. And how much time did you spend down there? About four days. And, and tell us a little bit about what it was like when you got there, what you saw, what you experienced. Were you able to help at all? Um, I think I was able to help. Um, there were other volunteer attorneys that went down there from other parts of the country. Um, the first thing I noticed when I got there was that was all the children, really. Um, as you said, I do primarily work with children, but they tend to be mostly teenagers. And when I first um, you know, got to the room where the refugees were staying, it, there were a lot of babies, toddlers, families with little kids. And, um, you know, it's it's a little shocking. Even though I do this work, it's still shocking to see um, all these families that are fleeing persecution. Are most of them fleeing persecution? Because you, you know how this immigration debate is so inflamed by rhetoric, especially those who, who, who want to close down the border, build a wall, think that there's too much illegal immigration, and there's a certain caricature of who's coming over. Describe, if you can, you mentioned these families. Did you talk to any of them? What, what, what kind of persecution are they fleeing? Yeah, um, absolutely, they are fleeing persecution. Um, I do know that people are talking about them as though you know, they're trying to cross the border illegally and charge the border and all of that. And it's just completely untrue. Um, they, they truly are being persecuted in their home countries. It's not an easy journey to go from the Northern Triangle, like El Salvador, Honduras, to the United States. It's very difficult. And you don't do that unless, you know, you really need to, unless you really need to. Um, so one thing that was common to most, if not all the stories, is the gang violence. A lot of people are fleeing gang violence. A lot of domestic violence. Um, so yes, these are truly cases of persecution. So one of the things that was interesting to me about the caravan is it seemed like it was an organized effort. There were people putting it together and they kind of had um, split into committees, as I understand it, to kind of keep things in order and make sure they had food and shelter and things like that. Um, how common is it really to find that level of organization? And how does that even come about? Well, um, this particular caravan, it's it's been organized. Um, it's been happening at least once a year for many years, actually. It's just never gotten this big. Um, but right now, with all the um, instability in the Northern Triangle and all the gang violence, there's a lot of people that are that are not safe there and that are looking for protection in the United States. So um, as I was saying, it's a really difficult journey. For my clients here, I'll hear cases where, um, you know, girls were raped on the journey or the people helping them with um, with travel – they pay them, then at some point they want them to pay more. Um, it, it can be really dangerous. So I think that's why the benefit of having a group like this, there is safety in numbers. And so I think they were able to avoid a lot of those dangers on the journey. Tell us a little bit about the asylum process. Um, I know you've talked about in some of your tweets, credible fear. That's, mm -hmm. that's one of the things they have to sort of prove. I mean, what right do they have to to come to the border and, and you know try to gain entry? Yeah, um, they do have the right to do that. People have the right to seek asylum. 
people don't have the right to get asylum, but they have the right to ask for it. And that's what they were doing. They were coming to the border to present themselves at the border and ask for asylum. And that's a legal form of immigration. So the first step usually is what's called a credible fear interview. And in that, um, what that is, is an asylum officer, um, usually over the phone, will talk to individuals while they're still in detention just to determine if they have, um, if they're truly, if they have a credible fear of persecution and if it's possible that they will have um, a strong asylum case. And then if they pass their credible fear interview, they're allowed to proceed along the process to seeking asylum. If they don't pass that, then they will, um, you know, be deported. Where are we at right now with all these people? I mean, there were hundreds, right, that came Mm -hmm. as part of the caravan. What's going on with them now? Did any of them pass this step? Um, I know that at least some have um, already been paroled into the United States, which means they were, you know, detained at the border, but then let out. Um, on parole to continue seeking or to continue on that asylum seeking process. So some have passed credible fear interviews. Others are still waiting. It can take up to a month sometimes to get scheduled for that credible fear interview. And during that time, people remain detained. I understand that you guys were in part bringing them some supplies to to help. I mean, what kind of condition were people in and what were they needing? Well, um, so the supplies we were asking for were feminine hygiene products, diapers, um, other kinds of hygiene products. And yeah, that was really amazing. We just um, called for donations for about 24 hours. And we were able to like fill the trunk of the car we took with donations from people, a lot of people here at UNLV and other people in the community. So um, people were staying in shelters. Um, Food was largely provided um, already, but I think it was really helpful. As I said, there were a lot of babies. So diapers, baby wipes, all of that was very needed. I mean, I'm interested more about, about the process because I think a lot of people just have no idea what this process is like. And, and, and again, there's so much caricaturing that goes on about a lot of this stuff. So during this credible fear interview, what kind of expertise do the people have who are conducting them? And I guess one of the reasons I'm asking is if I'm really smart and I'm a good actor, could I get past them? I've been, uh, MS-13 was doing all kinds of terrible things to my family and I had to flee and I got here and that's why I'm coming. Is that enough? Um, well, the people doing the interviews are actually asylum officers. So they, What's their training? Explain a little bit about that. Well, so they're the same people that, like, actually, if you apply for asylum, when it gets, um, you know, there's often a long wait, but when it's time that you actually have your asylum interview, it's asylum officers that do that. So they're trained by the government to um, know what the country conditions are like in different regions of the world and, um, you know, know they're, they're very knowledgeable. So... Um, I don't think it's likely that um, someone who's just faking their story would get past that, but you know I can't say for sure. But but do you think that there are people who do that? I'm just wondering. I'm just I I would guess that there are people who think that they're not going to be able to get into the country uh, legally who who might try to get through in this process. That you don't think that happens a lot or not? I I don't think so. And at least my experience um, there on the border in talking to people about their stories. Um, these are real stories, you know, people who are really not safe in their home countries. And I can't say it never happens, but I've never talked to anyone or experienced that. So you said there were hundreds of, of people down there. Are, are they more from one country than, than another? Most from Honduras, most from El Salvador? Where are they mostly coming from? The majority in this case uh, were from Honduras. And, 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 and tell people, because I think a lot of people are not familiar with what's going on in Honduras. Give us, give us an example of what kinds of stories these people tell about what's going on there. Um, often, um, well, I mean, there, there's all kinds of stories, but usually they do, they involve either, either the MS-13 gang or the Barrio 18 gang. 
Um, Honduras has one of the highest murder rates in the world. Um, I think right now it's about 40 per 100,000, whereas um, in the United States it's five per 100,000. So, um, you know, it is a really dangerous place, but also the gangs really control a lot. You know, they can control whole neighborhoods and they control who goes in and out of those neighborhoods. They charge um, a tax to every business in those neighborhoods. Taxi drivers have to pay them. Um, kids, you know, can't go to school sometimes if they're if they live in an MS-13 territory. They can't and their schools in 18 territory. They can't do that. They can't go to school sometimes. Um, and so there's a lot of ways in which people run into problems with the gangs. Um, you know, maybe they're being charged this extortion money at a business and they can't pay it anymore because it keeps going up. If they can't pay it, they either have to shut down their business or if they try to keep working, the gang might, um, you know, seek retaliation against them. And not just them, but a whole family. So that's why you're having not just individuals leaving, but whole families. Because, you know, this is whole communities, um, whole families that have to leave. You know, it's not just uh, one person here and there. It's, it's, I mean, it's widespread. It's essentially what you're describing, essentially a lawless environment that, they're, that the government, uh, the law enforcement there is just not controlling it, right? Um, I mean, I think the magnitude of the gangs, it's just, yeah, the government isn't able to fully c contain that situation. So one more question on the process before I, I let Michelle jump uh, back in. Uh, so they get past the credible fear interview, and then they're, they're going through the asylum process. If... Describe, if it becomes successful, exactly what their status in this country is. So if they get past the credible fear interview, then they're allowed to continue on the asylum process. Um, first, they'd be asking for bond, probably trying to get released from detention, um, and then hopefully find an attorney because, you know, these cases are really, really difficult to win, even for us. But without an attorney, it's nearly impossible. Um, and so... That case would likely take years to be adjudicated. Years? And, yeah. And so where are these people living? I mean, again, this is so foreign, I think, to a lot of people. They're being essentially, are they warehoused, essentially, before they actually can get, they have to go to a court proceeding. Here I am, I'm being persecuted in my own country. I'm fleeing to the to America, you know, mm -hmm. uh, 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 where, you know, we all think that people should be allowed to come who are being persecuted. It's part of what this country was founded on, right? And so they get here, and then they have to wait for all this time, and then they have to go through an actual court proceeding for a judge to say, okay, you're okay to come into this country? Is that how it works? Yeah, I mean, they don't have any actual legal status during that time. I mean, their status is asylum seeker. So, um, yeah, I mean, some people will remain detained that whole time. Those cases will be processed a little bit faster, but they could still be detained for, you know, a year or more. Um, even the children who come alone, a lot of the kids I work with, you know, they'll first be held in a child detention center and then be let out, um, hopefully to like a, a family friend or a, a family member in the United States who's their sponsor. But they'll have to keep going to court. And um, because of the backlog, because of all these immigration cases, um, here in Las Vegas, cases are being scheduled out about a year and a half for asylum cases. In other parts of the country, it's more like three to five years. So during that time, that person doesn't actually have a legal status and they're trying to live their life, but it's very much in limbo knowing that they, you know, after this hearing and however many years they could be deported. When you, when you say live their life, uh, are, are there restrictions on their movement? Do they live in kind of a barracks? How does it work? Well, um, it, it varies. So if people, get, if people get released, it's usually because they have a family member or someone who will kind of take responsibility for them and their well-being while they're here. Sometimes people, though, will be released with a ankle monitor. 
Um, so ICE will be tracking where they go and they do have restrictions. Or sometimes they're on ICE check-ins where every so often, it could be every month or so, they have to report to the ICE office and just show that they're here. Um, they aren't eligible to get work authorization for six months after they apply for asylum. So it, it's a really difficult process. It's it not easy. It's, it's not a loophole by any means. Yeah, it sounds like it. You talked about it being almost impossible to win these cases. Tell us what you have to prove. So um, you have to prove, I mean, the legal basis is that you have a well-founded fear of persecution in your home country, um, but based on certain protected grounds. So it's race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, which is a very kind of broad thing, the particular social group one. And that's where most of these cases fall. So um, it's it's really complicated law. And to, I mean, immigrants are not, they can, they can have an attorney in immigration proceedings, but one will not be provided for them. So a lot of people are navigating that completely on their own. Um, and I mean, like even, even the children, you know, they won't get an attorney provided for them. And so that's why these cases can be nearly impossible to win if you're representing yourself. We had news earlier this week about uh, AG Jeff Sessions um, announcing a new policy that families would be separated at the border. Um, tell us a little bit about about that and, and why we're seeing that, where that's coming from. Yeah, so what he was saying is that anyone they catch crossing who's crossed the border illegally will be prosecuted. And so then when those people are you know, put in jail, then they take the kids and put them in the child detention centers. Um, one thing that I think um, people should know is that fathers have always been separated from their kids. You know, people talk about this, but it's really about when we talk about family separation, it's mothers and children because there aren't any detention centers that will house fathers and children. So as it is now, even people who present themselves at the border and ask for asylum, if they want to detain that father, they will separate them. I mean, it's always been that way. And they, why? They're just, there aren't any facilities where they will house fathers and children together. The family detention centers are for mothers and children. This caravan uh, that came up, I mean, did they come up knowing that when they arrived, they might be separated from their children? And is that going to happen to these people? Um, I know that they were, they were able to talk with attorneys and um, different people who are, who are knowledgeable about the system like on their at different part points on the journey. So they did have some of that knowledge and you know um I think they tried to prepare for that but I'm sure it's really hard to prepare to prepare yourself for actually doing that. I was I witnessed um a couple of families kind of saying goodbye to each other because they know at least that the dads will be separated. And I mean honestly it was it was painful to even watch. I can't imagine what that experience is like knowing, you know, it could be months or years even before they're going to see each other again. The Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, said that it, it seems like he's framing it sort of as a deterrent. Like he thinks if if you separate the families and impose, I guess, this huge emotional trauma on people, they're, they're not going to even make that journey. I mean, is there anything to show us that that's I mean, a successful I don't believe strategy? that at all. You know, like I was saying, it's not an easy journey and asylum is not a loophole. And as we were just talking about, it's a even once you get released from detention and you're allowed to continue with that process, it's, it's a really difficult process. So people are coming here because they aren't safe where they are. You know, they're still going to come. It's just, I mean, <laughs> it's not going to, I don't think it's going to deter anyone.
This all comes as as TPS for Honduras got formally canceled, right? I mean, that's the it's it's done and, and people are going to have to start returning home. Explain what that is, Michelle, in case people listening T- don't know what it is. TPS is temporary protected status. And so this is 10 countries right now that are um, conditions are, are bad or have been bad. In Honduras's case, it was because Hurricane Mitch 20 years ago. Um, and recently DHS, Department of Homeland Security, determined that those conditions that prompted the original designation are no longer there and thus... There's some 57,000 Hondurans that are in the U.S. that have legal status and can get work permits. Um, so they're legal right now. Will either just totally lose legal status or or be you know at risk of deportation back home. Uh, what what did you learn? I'm I'm sure you talked to a lot of Hondurans there at the border. Um, what do you make of of the underlying decision to take the status? away from Honduras? Well, I mean, we know that the... So a lot of people say, oh, it's temporary protected status, right? It's supposed to be temporary. But like you said, it's been... TPS has been designated for Honduras since 1999. So it really hasn't been temporary. And every president since 1999 has renewed that designation. So this is definitely, a you know, a change by this administration, making, making a point, you know, like... They didn't. They didn't need to do this. Um, and also, I there's also about fifty thousand U.S. citizen children of TPS holders from Honduras. And I think, I mean, this administration has shown that they don't care about those. They don't care about these immigrant families. You know, it's not about um, undocumented immigrants or illegal immigration in this case. It's just about um, this anti-immigrant agenda that the administration is showing overall. Kirsten Nielsen, I think, did an interview with NPR maybe maybe yesterday or today, um, said something that, like, we're just following the law. The law says that, you know, yeah, it's temporary, and when the conditions are gone, Secretary it's done. of Homeland Security you're referring to. Yeah. How much discretion really do they have, though? I mean, are they bound to to abide by a very strict set of, of They absolutely have discretion. Um, like I was saying, I think this the TPS designation for Honduras has been reviewed 14 times since it was first um, declared, and nobody else has made that decision to cancel it. And, you know, we've seen it in recent months canceled for Haiti, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Nepal. This, they're not required to do this. I guess what I'm wondering, and, and you mentioned this, the first word is temporary. Maybe this is something that shouldn't exist in, in the way that it is. It shouldn't have to be renewed. Why would the status be temporary? Why not say, listen, if you're, if you're, whether it's hurricane or some other reason that you're coming into this country, if you can pass all of whatever the vetting is, why would it be temporary? I mean, exactly. And the thing is, if people want to talk about whether temporary protected status should exist, you know, that's a different conversation that people can have. But this is real people who have been living in the United States for at least 20 years. They have families here. They own businesses. They pay taxes. Um, you you can't have any have committed any kind of serious crime and have TPS. So, I mean, these are the kind of people that we want here and that are part of our communities. So, I mean, I think that, you know, if people want to have that conversation about if TPS should even exist – then, you know, they could have that about TPS going forward. But it shouldn't, um, people who already have TPS and who have been allowed to stay here for 20 or more years shouldn't suffer the consequences well, of that. M- Michelle and, and Luce Gray wrote a story recently, it was a couple Sundays ago, 
uh, I think, right? Those, the, the, the horrific journey that, the, that, that these, uh, this family went through to get here, uh, and they've become a fabric of this community. They, they have a, a restaurant, which, by the way, I keep meaning to go to. I want to go to this restaurant. It sounds wonderful. Um, and now suddenly, from out of nowhere... Uh, suddenly you said you're not you're not really welcome here uh, anymore. That, that's the point here. I, I do think that the designation of temporary should be done away with and that conversation should be had. But these people are here. They've mm-hmm. become, I'll say it again, part of the fabric of a community. Uh, and suddenly you're going to say, uh, sorry, you know, you've lived a great life here 20 years. You're law-abiding. You've come out of horrific circumstances. You've built a life and a business here. See you later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's... What is the logic behind that? I mean, I think that we've seen it's hard even for us um, who work in the field of immigration. It can be hard to keep up with all the changes being made by this administration. And I think it's just part of this overall agenda where we're seeing every way that they can show it. They're showing that they don't want immigrants here, you know. I guess what I want to spend, we have, you know, about, I don't know, about five, ten minutes left. We're not a border state. Uh, Nevada's not. Las Vegas isn't. But there's an immigration clinic at, at, at UNLV. People might say, why? Well, um, we have a lot of immigrants here in Las Vegas. Um, we have a lot of people with TPS. A lot of people who work in the hotel and um, casino industry have TPS. And um, we have a lot of people with DACA. I mean, we have a huge immigrant community here. So A lot of undocumented immigrants as well, right? Um, yeah, yeah, we have a lot of undocumented immigrants here, a lot of mixed status families. So immigrants are really part of the fabric of this community in Las Vegas and in Nevada. And uh, uh, do, do you deal with in, 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 the, in the job that you have, do you have undocumented uh, uh, immigrants coming to you all the time saying that, that they need help? Do you have, and it's interesting, I've never heard that phrase before. I should have probably, mixed families. I assume that means some are documented and, and some are not coming because they're fearful that their family members are going to be deported. Are these the kinds of cases we're talking about? Yes. Um, so we do almost exclusively deportation defense. So my primary area of focus is with unaccompanied children. So these are uh, mostly teenagers, but my youngest clients um, are six. And those are kids who are in the process of deportation, and we're trying to defend them from that. But we also have adults. Um, we do a lot of different kinds of cases, but that's kind of our main thing is deportation defense. And we do – we get calls every day, you know, and we've seen a, a huge increase, actually, in calls from the detention center. Um, people calling – we've seen a big increase in people calling and saying they were arrested on traffic warrants, unpaid traffic tickets, and now they are being deported because of the ICE detainers or the 287G agreement. Um, Explain what that is. That's that's the oh, agreement yeah. that, that – so we've written two, a lot about this, yeah, but go ahead. 287G is the agreement between local law enforcement, so here um, Metro and ICE, saying that Met- um, the police will honor ICE detainers. And so when someone ends up in the Clark County Detention Center, if they're undocumented, ICE can put a detainer on them and Metro will agree to – then let those people be transferred into ICE custody. Um, can you, what's the mood like, especially among the immigration <laughs> lawyer community? You talked about, you know, yeah. you guys sometimes talk amongst each other. I mean, what's what's the outlook? Um, especially because Congress can fix some of this stuff. Congress can, can fix TPS to some level and they can fix DACA. I mean, yeah. is, there, is there hope? Are you guys watching these votes that are... <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think we're just... 
you know, it's it's hard to even keep up with all the changes that are happening. But um, it's kind of feeling like a constant battle right now. But I think people are really fighting. You know, I wouldn't say we've we've given up or anyone's hopeless. I think we, you know, we're fighting. Um, everyone is committed, I think. And um, we have a lot of strong advocates here in Las Vegas who are committed to carrying on this fight for immigrants as long as we need to. Do you think Congress is going to act? Um, as far as the DREAM Act or TPS? Yeah. I would say I'm not confident about that at this point, um, but I still hope they will because we really need them to. Are you overwhelmed at the clinic? I mean, do you have do you have enough people to do what you do? Um, in in Las Vegas in general, we absolutely don't. You know, we really don't have any um, any immigration legal defense providers here um, to provide full time pro bono legal services to immigrants. You have us at the clinic, but there's only like two of us, <laughs> and there's a couple people at Legal Aid that do this work and Catholic Charities. Um, but that's kind of it. There's only a handful of us in the whole Las Vegas Valley. And as you we were saying, this is an immigrant community, and we really don't have enough people doing this work here. Is that because we're not a border state and most, most people who are doing this are down in the border states and that's the place to be if you're in, in, in that legal field? You know, I'm not really sure why it is. Um, I think we don't have – sometimes we get overlooked as being an immigrant community as with, through national organizations that do this work. But I think we really need more funding for this year, and we need more organizations to come in and set this stuff up because there's a huge need. We are overwhelmed. We're getting calls, like I was saying, for the detention center all the time from people who, you know, have often have U.S. citizen children, um, and they're taken in just because of unpaid tickets and things like that. We're seeing that all the time. You mentioned this, and I, I, I want to try to keep politics out of this as much as we can. It's almost impossible, right, with these kinds of issues. But you mentioned the 287G agreement where Metro essentially agrees to, to honor uh, the ICE detainers. Why is this whole issue of sanctuary cities, which is not even a real thing but is a political term, if the 287G agreement exists, why is that even an issue? You know, I'm not sure because, as you said, we don't have any sanctuary cities here. I know that Las Vegas um, a while ago did end up on some lists of sanctuary cities. So I think maybe that's what prompted some of this discussion. But, but that was eventually cleared up by the federal government. The, 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 we they are raised not. The, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I'm not sure. With the 287G agreement, it's Metro is saying that they will work with ICE, and they do work with ICE. So we don't have any sanctuary cities here. And, and indeed, the, in, in the legislature, I'm trying to educate people when this is going to come up, as, as, as you know, during with this ballot question, assuming, and, and still will be an issue, because at least three major candidates here are talking uh, uh, about sanctuary cities. It's not just that there's no, no sanctuary uh, cities here, but that whole term to me is used as a way to inflame passions on on, on one side and to create the 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 the, the image of uh, 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 what happened in San Francisco when when, when an illegal immigrant committed committed a murder and that they're going to be streaming that, that they want we want to let them all out of uh, our detention facilities right you're, you're nodding uh, but that's really the image they want to create by even just creating that term I think. Yeah, I mean, and even in sanctuary cities, if someone is a, a violent criminal, they don't get let out of detention just because it's a sanctuary city. Like, criminal detention still works the same way in a sanctuary city. 
All right. I, I think that's all uh, the time we have. Uh, anyhow, Lord, thanks for coming on. This is a, it's a terribly difficult field that you're in, and you're doing the Lord's work, and, and I hope you'll come back and, and talk about this. And I have tremendous respect uh, for Michael Kagan, who's written an op-ed or two for us, and you should write op-eds uh, <laughs> for, for us, too. You're a very articulate spokeswoman for, 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 for what you do, so thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. And thanks, Michelle. Thanks for asking questions and, and making me look not as bad as I usually do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, Elizabeth, as I mentioned, Elizabeth Thompson's not around this week. She's a little bit under the weather. Uh, so that's all the time we have. I want to remind everybody that our podcast interviews are also available on KUNV. That's the university's radio station, 91.5 The Source, 8.30 p.m. on Thursdays. We love our partnership with UNLV. Uh, we want to know what you think about this podcast. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, yeah, we love praise once in a while, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com, and please check out the site. If you haven't already, uh, we're the place to be for politics, public policy, and campaigns, the NevadaIndependent.com. Also, you can rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on Google Play and Stitcher. Yes, I figured out a way to get us on Stitcher. The old guy is not as much of a techno moron as everybody thought. Thanks again to Laura Barrera for, for coming on the podcast. And I want to thank our wonderful hosts, as always, at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always... Many thanks to Joey Lovato. He's our fantastic producer who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Oh, is Michelle podcast smooth? Yes, she is. Anyone is podcast smooth compared to me, though. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week.